It is party time, Mom. Welcome to another episode of the Chad Brather Show. I'm glad you guys are here today because we got a big show in front of us, just like always, just like always. I mean, you've never wasted your time by hanging out with us here in the Mothership, which is Studio 22. And let me tell you something. I've been telling you guys forever, forever, that conservatism is not conserving anything. The government continues to grow at a bigger and bigger, faster exponential pace. And there's so many people out there who claim to be conservatives who... You know, your rhetoric and your lip service says that you want a small, limited government that's non-invasive in your life. But let's face it, if tomorrow suddenly the government became small, you wouldn't know what to do with your life. You've become so dependent on the Fed. Man, let me tell you something. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to bash the notion in the head and get back to what conservatism is all about. Because my friend Rachel Bazard is in studio with me talking about her new book that she co-authored with Senator Jim DeMint called Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. Too many people these days claim to be conservatives and don't know what it means to be a conservative. Folks, it's okay. You don't have to apologize for it. It doesn't matter what people online or on social media label you as. It's okay to be a conservative. And today we're going to help you think. We're going to remind you that not only is America great, but it is diverse. And it's okay to have differing opinions. And it's okay to have the convictions to believe what you believe. So we're going to be sitting down right here in the, it's almost like, it's like being in heaven right here. Just hanging out. Studio 22, just giving you a wealth of knowledge, so many things to process and to absorb. Yeah, I'm, I'm tooting my own horn, but remember, folks, he who tooteth not his own horn remains in a perpetual state of untootedness. So, toot, toot, we about to get this party started, Mom. Party time in Studio 22 with all the crew that you love. Hang tight. We'll be right back. We're going to have a good one with my friend, Rachel Bozart. Hey, if you're thinking about replacing the carpets in your house, I want you to stop. Stop right now. I know what you're saying. Your argument is, I got pet stains, I got pet odors, I got to replace my carpet. Stop. I want you to try Genesis 950. Before you consider going into the huge expense of replacing your carpet, try Genesis 950. Genesis 950, I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you 100% an amazing pet stain and odor remover. You guys have watched me. You know about Willie. You know about June. You know about Cash. You know our dogs. They're in and out of the house. Let me tell you something. You take a little bit of water. You take Genesis 950. It's going to break down the bonds of stains and odors so they're gone for good. It's antibacterial component. removes pet stains and odors from the carpet and even down into the padding. It can be used in a carpet cleaning machine, and it's great. Green, so it's safe for both your family and your pets. You're not going to harm anybody. So if you're tired of pet cleaners that don't work, you got to try Genesis 950. One gallon of industrial strength Genesis 950 can make up to seven gallons of cleaner. You can use a larger ratio if it's required for older stains or bigger odors. And Genesis 950 is not just for your pet stains and odors. You can clean your entire house with it. That's right. Bathrooms, kitchens, countertops, granite, quartz, garage floors, oil and grease stains, engines, wheels, tools, upholstery. Before you purchase new carpet, try Genesis 950. Genesis 950 is available on Amazon.com, but if you order a gallon direct at Genesis950.com, you will receive a free spray bottle 
and you're going to get a discount using the word blaze b-l-a-z-e go to genesis 950.com genesis 950.com Everybody, as you know, as I told you just a little while ago, we're going to have a lot of fun today. We're going to get into some interesting stuff. You've heard me talk about this idea that conservatives these days they really don't even seem to be conserving anything. We've sort of lost this idea of what conservatism means in America. Yes, I know that those who lean right, they call themselves a conservative, but do you even know what that means? Is What is your values? What are the things that that is built upon? What are the principles, the foundations, the pillars that make you a conservative? Well, we're going to sit down with my friend here today, Rachel Bovard. Rachel's in from Washington, D.C. Thanks for coming on the show. Straight from the swamp. Straight out of the swamp, <laughs> and I'm so sorry about that. Now, let me give you a little bit, just some resume on Rachel. <clears throat> Rachel served both the House and the Senate. You started with Rand Paul. In the Senate, yeah. In the mm -hmm. Senate. So you served in the Senate and the House in 2006, and you were like, what, 12? 12 <laughs> yes, years old, something like that? Prodigy. <laughs> exactly. You really were. And then you were Director of Policy Services for the Heritage Foundation. 2013, National Journal, Most Influential Women in Washington Under 35. That's pretty amazing. It's about to age. I'm about to age out You're of the category. You're going to age out of that? But right now yeah. I'm still in it. So, But that's that's an incredible thing. I mean, it's, it's amazing because I think that two, two observations. One— I think a lot of people in America today have almost given up hope for that next generation or that millennial, if you will. I hate even using that term ever. But and then is there hope for the next generation to be able to embrace conservative values and be an influential voice? Yeah. And that's and I think we're seeing more and more of that. But it's it's kind of hidden if you look at mainstream in culture. What's been your experience on that? Yeah, it definitely is. And, and it's an interesting time to be here. So I'm the oldest of four kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, between me and my youngest sibling, who's my brother, we are vastly far apart. I think we probably represent that big generational yeah. shift a little bit because he's a huge fan of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that really? and that mood. And I love to ask him why and really get into his head. And I kind of, you know, I it, what's interesting to me is that in talking to him and then looking at some of the, the polling that's done among millennials and Zoomers, the Gen Z generation mm -hmm. behind me, you know, especially when it comes to our free market system, capitalism and socialism, they're not necessarily rejecting capitalism. They're rejecting the way capitalism has been sort of worked against them a little bit by our policymakers. And I and I get it to some extent. You know, I kind of came of age professionally during TARP. Right. Yeah. When the government was bailing out the auto industry and bailing out the big banks, but not bailing out 401ks, you know, and not taking care of the little guy. Um, you know, they see their student loan prices going up, but it's the federal government that's manipulating them, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so, it, you know, they see the tax code, which is uh, sort of still favored in part for corporations. So I they, they look at their health care system, which is a government run mess. So I understand a little bit why they're saying this isn't working. Yeah. But where I really think, uh, you know, we, we don't communicate well enough to this next generation is, is something that we actually wrote about in the book. Senator Jim DeMitt and I wrote a book about sort of the ideals of conservatism. And one is this idea of keeping our differences. And that really seems to resonate with this millennial and, and Zoomer generation. This idea that, you know, everybody has equal opportunity, but not everybody's going to have the same outcome because we're all different, yeah. because we have different gifts and different abilities. When you start talking in those terms... 
it really does seem to resonate. But yeah. I think there's a whole ton of work to do on the right and the left if we're going to save this next generation from itself. <laughs> you alluded to it, and that's in you and Jim DeMint, the former senator from South Carolina. Now, Jim is, is and we won't start naming ages and things. I give you a hard time about that. She says she's about to phase out of the 35 and under <laughs> most influential. So we, we kind of know where you are. <laughs> Jim's in his late 60s, mm-hmm. right? And yep. what an odd combination. Because you wrote, you wrote the book Conservative, Knowing What to Keep which is what I was alluding to at the very beginning. Conservative, knowing what to keep. How did you connect with someone who is that much older than you and then find a common ground to be able to come together and write a book? Yeah, it was a challenge, but it was something that uh, was fun for us. And, mm-hmm. and it was really uh, Senator DeMint's idea. He said, you know, nobody really wants to hear from the old guy, so I want right. this new, fresh take on it. And I want you to help me communicate to this to your, your own generation. And, and that was really fun, I think, for both of us. But, mm-hmm. you know, we did have... We, we we articulate things a little bit differently. And I think that chapter on keeping our differences is one of my favorites because it's not necessarily something that I think occurs necessarily to Senator DeMint's generation. Mm-hmm. It's baked into the baseline maybe for them. But I think for this newer generation, you know, diversity is very important. This idea that all of our individual experiences matter is really important. And the left has tried to capitalize on that. But that's really a conservative idea is this idea that, you know, the government doesn't tell us how to live together. America is one of the most diverse countries founded on the most diverse principles in the world. Uh, We need to keep that. And the way you keep that is you keep the federal government at bay and you let parents and communities and schools and individuals make decisions for themselves. There was a study that was done. Um. A number of years ago, and I know that they, they one of the studies, they talked about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, even Benjamin Franklin, many of these founding fathers and even the great thinkers of our nation. The reason they were such intelligent people is because even as children, they spent a lot of time with adults mm-hmm. and listening to adult conversations and engaging in, in adult, adult conversation and dialogue. And I think that these days we have this um, ageism, if you will, where – and I know that there's a lot of folks who watch this show or listen to this show, and, and they might identify in that boomer, at least upper Gen X age, and they're looking at the next generation going, hopeless. But, I mean, generations have always done that. Yeah. So, you know, I love the fact that you guys have come together with a multi-generation perspective on that. How many times did – did Jim just want to bust his head against the wall and say, you know, it, I mean, because was it like talking two different languages? Yeah. Every now and then we would have moments where we would definitely go back and forth. He was right. very accommodating. You know, I think the the thing that makes Senator DeMint great is he's been such a mentor for a number of young, mm-hmm. younger Senate staffers and, and conservatives. And I'm one of them and I've really benefited from him. And so he he's very patient. And I think he wants us to be successful. Yeah. You know, but he did push back on a couple of things and said, no, you know, this is. You know, the benefit of wisdom matters here. The collective wisdom is important for this. And so, you know, but we really did, to your point about, I think, boomers and, and the Gen Xers looking and saying there is no hope. It's interesting. Russell Kirk, who we pull on a lot for this book, who's sort of the father of the modern conservative right. thought, you know, he says it's incumbent upon conservatives in every generation to make it matter to the next generation. Mm. So this is something that, you know, we, we like to think it's an anomaly, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually what we as conservatives this is our job is yeah. to prepare the next generation, you know, philosophically to confront the challenges, not just politically. Right. Because mm. conservatives, politics is kind of a little bit of what we do, but it's all about culture and civil society and family and choices. It's so much bigger than politics. And so we want the next generation to be ready to grapple with those questions, too. So if you're asking yourself, OK, conservative, what to keep? What do we need to keep? What do we need to keep? 
What do we need to get rid of? Because mm-hmm. I, I, in my opinion, I think we've gotten so you, – you mentioned earlier the swamp. I think we've gotten a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. We don't really know what we're doing right now other than maybe drawing – pests and mosquitoes and flies. <laughs> what what needs to stay? What needs to go? Yeah. So this is an interesting question because conserva- everybody's trying to define what conservative means, mm-hmm. right? The left says it means that you're a racist and a bigot. And the right... Well, I thought it did. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Ask anyone on the left. They'll tell you, actually. <laughs> but, you know, people on the right, I think, are a little bit like, what is it? And conservatism is is not a reflexive policy prescription, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people try to make it that way. But really what it is, is it's a set of principles and it's a philosophy grounded in gratefulness. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really came across to me. Senator DeMint had said that for a long time and it didn't really resonate with me until we started going back and, and reading sort of the fathers of conservatism. But it's this idea that, you know, America was founded on this collective wisdom that says, hey, we've we know what's worked, right? We've, we've tried. Human nature doesn't change that much. We've spent a lot, hundreds of years trying things that haven't mm-hmm. worked. And occasionally we get it right. And those little things that we get right are worth fighting for. Yeah. And it's not this idea that conservatives never change or they never give up on things that aren't working. It's just that they do so with an eye towards prudence. It's a big difference between us and the left. Because the left says if something's not working, burn it down. Mm-hmm. Destroy it. Start over. And conservatives say, hey... This might not be working. So let's find the pieces that aren't working. But something made this successful. What Mm -hmm. was it? How do we keep it? And so, you know, politically, that sort of meets out in in a much more thoughtful approach to policy as opposed to immediately saying the government can fix this or, you know, we have to scrap this and start over. It's a prudent approach. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe putting our whole healthcare system in the lap of the government wasn't the best idea because we've seen that fail before. So. Like, look at Party Foul Steve sitting over there at the pub there. He's just hanging out. Like, I wish the government could fix him. They like, can't do it. They, they can't, can't. They can't fix me. And thank you for making me feel like I'm the most underachieved human being. <laughs> After that resume, I was like, oh, I'm done. I can't talk today. Yeah, no, you're pretty much out of this one, Steve. Yep. Me and you both, actually, but it's my show, so I get to talk. But Steve and I were just out in California, and you go – all over the place, you see these homeless people laying out on the street. It's a sad condition. Conservative looks at that one way. Liberal looks at that the, uh, another way. And they both have different solutions. They, they both want to help the person. Yeah. But what's the, what is the difference? Let's, just taking that as an example, what's the difference in how we view it, the cause of it, the solution for it, the steps you take? How, we see those just as that as an example because we can apply it to so many different things. What's yeah. the difference? Well, I think a liberal looks at that situation and says the government has failed here. Yeah. Like we need to fund. We're, we're not funding enough programs. You know, we haven't hired enough bureaucrats. If we do those things, we will fix this problem. Uh, there are heartless people benefit, you know, that we need to tax to fix this problem. A conservative is going to look at that and say, wow, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to deny that. But I think it's recognizing that the homeless problem in California is totally different than the homeless problem in New York, which is different from the homeless problem in Texas. So maybe one giant solution isn't good here, (coughs) right? But, and maybe we should work with our local governments to figure out, you know, we have a fixed pool of resources. Where are we spending this money? Because obviously there's a resource problem here, but where are existing resources going? And so everybody wants to solve the problem. It's just this idea of one size fits all mandated from the top isn't necessarily going to solve problems that look different, mm-hmm. you know, across the country. We, Edmund Burke, who who is a father of conservatism, um, 
wrote a lot about the French Revolution, he called this the concept of a little platoon. And it's this idea that individual communities know what's best for, for each other. It's not that they don't get help from the federal government. It's not that the government doesn't have a role to play in allowing communities to flourish, basically just getting out of the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better term. But they see the problem. In individual communities can best diagnose their problem and their local solutions. So conservatives, I think, get a bad rap for being heartless yeah. when they take that approach. But I, I take the opposite. You know, they want to have lasting, meaningful change, not some guy across the country that doesn't know your problem trying to solve it for you. Yeah. I, it's fascinating to me because you alluded to it earlier. You, know, you, you say you're conservative. Well, automatically you must be a bigot. You must be a racist. You must be a misogynist. You're a sexist. You're a xenophobe, homophobe, all of these different things. Yeah. You know, everybody's got a label these days. And if you look at, say, uh, urban America and the problem in urban America, if as a conservative I look at it and say, well, it doesn't help that you have 75% fatherless homes. Right. You right. Know? Exactly. Also, the civil society question. Right. No, that's a really good point. And one that we don't talk enough about, mm-hmm. I think. You know, cons- we swung a little bit so far to the libertarian right, I think, in some of these conversations mm-hmm. that it's like you're not allowed to talk about civil society exactly. anymore because then you're imposing your religious views. Mm-hmm. And that's not conservative at all. To, to one, to impose religious views on people, but also to not talk about civil society. We wrote a chapter about this called, you know, keeping our religious differences. And it's really grounded in this idea that a transcendent moral order of any kind is good for society, right? Whether you, you having a religious belief, religious people tend to be happier, more responsible, more engaged mm-hmm. in their communities. Like it just is better for society to have religious people in it of any sort. Sure. And the left has basically said, no, everything needs to be secular. Our religion is atheism. Any religion is terrible. And, you know, what conservatives say is not you have to believe what I believe, but there is a place for this transcendent moral order. And that really reflects in civil society. And so it's adding that component to these policy questions, to your example of homelessness. There may be a resource question, but gosh darn it, there's probably a civil society question, too. And, And, you know. The government can't solve that. Mm-hmm. That is much more about the local communities, the families, the churches, what we call the mediating institutions, right? Yeah. The schools and the churches and the you know community organizations that have a role to play there. And I know that one of our foundations as conservatives is is a limited, less invasive government, self-government, that autonomy, that ability to govern not only yourself, your family, your community, your private property, those things. But the collective really wants to have this big invasive government. How big is Washington, D.C.? And does Washington, D.C., right or left, does Washington, D.C. even care about you and your family and your community and your property? It's such a good point. You know, and when people we talk about the swamp, the swamp is real. And I don't think people realize we don't talk about it enough just how much that city sustains itself on the back of the federal government. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that, like, some of the top four richest counties in the United States are all around Washington, D.C. It's because they're making money off the government. I mean, these are contractors. These are federal workers. These are people who, you know, I always joked when I worked on Capitol Hill that I didn't have a real job that was contributing to America (laughs) because I was, you know, a cog in the federal wheel. But that's essentially what a lot of those jobs are. And, you know, any it, it common sense tells you that when a bunch of people get together to make decisions for other people that are halfway across the country, they're not going to get it right. Yeah, they just can't. Like they don't have the ability and the and the on the ground experience to make those decisions correctly. So yeah. people don't think that through. But the more decision making power you give to Washington, the less responsive and nuanced it's going to be for you. Yeah, 
If you're just popping in here, we're sitting here in Studio 22 having a good talk, talking about conservatism with Rachel Bovard. She, along with former senator from South Carolina, Jim DeMint, wrote a book called Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. And uh, the idea that America – I get – like, I, you spend a lot of time on Twitter. Oh, too much. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, don't you much. love hate it? <laughs> yeah. I just, like, <clears> I, I, mean, can't, I can't look away. It's like a car crash. <laughs> it's a dumpster fire. Yeah. <laughs> I have gotten so addicted to it. To this thing that I always said that I don't, I don't want to see it, I don't want to see it, and then I'm like, there I am right in the middle of it, and I just, it's almost like a masochistic, like I want to go in there and see what I can stir up. Yeah. It's like when I take time off of Twitter, I'm actually a happier person. Aren't you though? But then, but like I can't stop. Like <laughs> I know our friend Dave Rubin, you know, he, he took a month off the internet altogether and then came back, didn't even know what was going on in the world, didn't even watch the news for a oh, month. Bliss. Can you imagine? <laughs> Uh, I think my eye would start it's twitching. Been, yeah, it's been a few years. I did that for a month, uh, but it, that was like 2015, I think. So since then, no, I'm, addic- I'm addicted. I'm a junkie. Ben Shapiro takes the Saturdays off. You know, some of these people can pull away. I'm not capable of that. Yeah. But I go on there and I hear these people, especially politicians, people who represent America. And, and I'll go one step further talking about the swamp. D.C.'s full of scumbags. I mean, just pure selfish scumbags. Yeah. Adam Schiff, I'm talking to you. Talking to you, Adam Schiff. You listening? Yeah. I'm talking to you, Shifty. I mean, the stuff that you see going on is like, oh, my gosh, this stuff's so crazy. But I, it drives me crazy. Does it bother you? Do, do, do semantics bother you like when leaders in the country get on here and, and like an Eric Swalwell or somebody like that and keep referring to the country as a democracy? Yes. And I think language is so important. Mm-hmm. And the less precise we are. I just think it hurts our discourse and it hurts our civic ability to engage because, you know, Sarah Nement likes to point this out all the time. We're a republic, you know, and I think this idea, like Swalwell in particular, referring constantly to us as a direct democracy sort of Mm -hmm. undermines that whole message. And it gives credence to this idea that somehow our presidents are are illegitimate because they're elected by the Electoral College. Yeah. Right. Even though that was put in place to give representation to the small states yeah. to make sure that our presidents weren't picked by New York and California and, mm-hmm. and now Texas. Right. It gives yeah. the small states or the less populated states a say. And all of that is incredibly important. So I do think semantics matter. But that said, it's the, in the age of Trump. You know, the word swamp is so descriptive and it's mm-hmm. so accurate to to, I think, accommodate everything that goes on in Washington, which yeah. really is, you know, the longer people spend there, I think the more they get disconnected from what people really care about. That yeah. is just a fact. I'm curious to know from your perspective, and there's no right or wrong answer here. I just want to know your honest opinion. Do you think that Trump is truly a conservative? I think it's hard to say personally. Um, I think his outcomes have been tremendously conservative. Mm. And I think uh, it's been surprised a lot of people because we weren't sure, Right. I think Trump got elected on this frustration, rightly felt, you know, from the American people that, you know, people ran to represent them and then went to Washington and said, yeah, never mind. You know, we're going to do what we want. And Trump represented this, you know, force for a a disrupting force that I think a lot of people wanted. But I will say on on specific issues when it comes to deregulation, the guy has done things that I don't think any other president would have done. He's fearless in that regard. On the pro-life issue, which is something I'm very passionate about, he has been the most pro-life president we've had. I would say even more than Reagan. He got Planned Parenthood to defund themselves, yeah. which is maybe the greatest troll of all time. Yeah. But, you know, so I think he intuitively understands what people care about and responds to that. 
So if however you want to define that as personally conservative, I'll say his outcomes have been pretty good. Yeah, very pro-America. Yeah. I always defy people, show me something that he's done where the outcome has been not American. Right. Yeah. It's not pro-America, uh, regardless of where he falls on the political spectrum or something like that. Because, I mean, you take uh, Senator DeMint. I mean, that, he's, he is a conservative. Yeah. He's a conservative's <laughs> conservative, right? right. Uh, do you feel that you fall in that line of the spectrum? Or to, more towards a more moderate view of conservatism or like, are we conservative enough when it comes to our principles or are we on a right path in terms of where we're headed? Yeah. For instance, the next generation. Yeah. So I think the the thing I love about and I would identify myself as a conservative, but sure. the thing I love about being a conservative is that it's not this rigid, fixed ideology. It's not an ideology. That's what the left gives us. Mm-hmm. You know, they give us dogma. Conservatives are uh, conservative is, is a, conservatism is a set of principles and philosophies, and I think it encompasses a lot and encompasses people like me who say who, for instance, you know, I'm a small government, fiscally conservative person, but I'm not an, a neo a neoconservative. Mm-hmm. Right. I, th- I think we should get out of Afghanistan. Sure. I think I would counsel a ton of prudence when it comes to our foreign policy. So I'm a dove in that respect. I think the Internet companies have way too much power. Mm-hmm. I don't like corporate power just as much as I don't like government power. So where does, you know, that might take me away, I think, from maybe the conservatives of the 90s, you know, who were very pro-business, very hawkish, but I still consider myself conservative because mm-hmm. I approach things with the principles of thoughtfulness and prudence and, you know, hearkening back to what we've seen and learning from it. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that the Democrats have done some irreparable, irreparable damage to themselves? I mean, you look at three years. Uh, let's say three years. We're rounding up three years of Donald Trump presidency. They've done no legislation for their constituents. They've mm-hmm. really done nothing but try to get the man out of office or try to make him look bad. It's been an orange man bad policy. <laughs> totally has. And in some cases, like the Ukraine scandal and the stuff going on with the Bidens and uh, you know the impeachment inquiry and these things, do you feel like they maybe if they're one string away from pulling the wrong thread and it just unravels for them? Yeah, I do think that this I mean, they have wanted to impeach this guy since day one. Mm-hmm. And and I think their lack of legislative agenda is going to hurt them with their moderates, you know, th- who actually didn't send them to Washington just to impeach President Trump. They sent yeah. them to do stuff. But what's been really interesting to watch, I think, in this last couple of years is the Democrats really unmask themselves like. Ten years ago, we used to joke, you know, that that uh, the Democrats wanted to take your health care away. They were yeah. gun grabbers. They were socialists. They supported killing babies. These were jokes. Yeah. They're now real. They're saying them they out loud. Are, you have socialists running for president. You have people that want to eliminate private health insurance. Beto O'Rourke was running on a mandatory gun confiscation yeah. plan. And 44 cent of Democrats voted for abortion up until and after birth. Yeah. This is the party that we're dealing with. So to that extent... I've almost been grateful a little bit because now I know, right? Yeah. And now they can't roll their eyes at me because I'm like, yeah, guys, you did it. Yeah, here's your, here's a direct quote. <laughs> yeah. Because again, back to Twitter, you'll get on there and you'll say things that people are like, no one is saying that. Yeah. And I was like, everyone's saying Actually, it's it. it's your platform issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So I'm, I'm, you know, I can't wait to read the book. It, conservative, knowing what to keep. Rachel Bovard along with Senator Jim DeMint. And I'm excited about that because... I've read enough of the just the release, the press release on it and things like that. I'm like, yes, this is the stuff I've been saying. <laughs> this is the stuff because there are foundational principles and they are diametrically opposed to the people that I, I mean, these folks that are watching this, listen to this podcast right now. How many times you go online and have that debate? And I have people all the time and say, why do you debate? You're not going to change anybody's mind. I said, 
I'm not, it's, I'm not trying to change the person I'm debating's mind. It's the person listening in on the debate. Right. And your book is going to do that for a lot of people. Yeah, I hope so. I believe it will. Conservatism is a big tent. It's a big tent philosophy and principles. It's not ideology. It's not dogma. You will, if you hear anything that you somewhat agree with today, you'll find yourself in that book. Yeah. So. You also are a sommelier. Yes. That is impressive. (laughs) I don't know if you guys understand, but somebody that really knows wine, to be a psalm is a hard thing to become. Yeah, it's not just drinking. No, it's I know it's, it's it's expectorating, <laughs> it's expectorating. as you say. <laughs> yeah, you, I, I'm like, why do you want to waste good wine in a brass pot? Yeah, in a spittoon. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we can't call it spitting. We have to call it expectorating. Expectorating. That's so the fancy word. So, so do you? How how long does it take you to develop a palate, to develop a nose, and and to be able to find those notes? I mean, you ever? I mean, I'm not talking to you because I ain't know you. I'm talking to the average person out there that's drinking a ripple. Like you want to read the back label and you're like, okay, it has hints of raspberry and, and cow patty and here's a, you know, a chocolate chip and peanut butter. And yeah. No, it I takes mean, a it's time. It's crazy. No, it is. And it's, you know, people think it's like a party trick. They always give me wine and they're like, blind taste this. Yeah. But it, it did take some time. I think if you appreciate good food and wine anyway, you have a palate. Yeah. It's just sort of learning to listen to it. And it really did take me some time, you know, to create sort of a sense memory. So like when I, you know, put my nose in wine or I taste it, I have a memory back to something I've tasted before. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny if you ever see someone running around a grocery store, like sticking their face in the oranges or like outside, like putting rocks in their mouth, like they're probably a psalm <laughs> because they're trying to like figure out yeah. what does a wet rock taste like? <laughs> we have a good friend across town who is, uh, he's, he's not a full on psalm, but he is, he's quite knowledgeable and he's, he's done quite a bit and accomplished a lot. And so we'll go in and have uh, brunch or lunch some days on the weekend and he always goes to my wife jade and he's like i know what you want today and like he he has experienced enough of her enjoying certain things that he keeps wines in his mind of what he and he's never wrong yeah it's really amazing it's really fun i think that's one of the fun parts for me i, t- I teach a lot of wine yeah um and really helping people do that so talking about what they like and then giving them something they'll tell me they'll they think they're gonna hate but then it has all the components that they just mentioned to me. And just watching people experience that is really fun. Well, there you go, folks. That's all you got to do. I mean, that's why we drink whiskey. Yeah. We call it our apple juice. That's our that's hey, our way out. Whatever works. Yeah. And, and wine is grape juice. Yeah. So that's what happens. You read the book, get you a good glass of wine, get conservative, knowing what to keep, Jim DeMint, Rachel Bovard, and just read it with a glass of wine. And listen, the more it... I watch too much CNN and Fox News and stuff like that. Melt and your listen brain. To NP- That's why I drink whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Keep myself, like, I want to be numb. That's why I work in politics and wine. Exactly. You know, one begets the other. I understand of. why one leads to the other. Yeah. You ever you ever go drink at the Trump? Of course. Of course. It's yeah. my favorite spot. You ever go to Russia House? I have been to Russia House many nights. <laughs> wow, Russia House. Yeah, that's a throwback, but yeah. It really is. Let me tell you, so uh, Steve and I, you know, we're in D.C. from time to time. Can you see this guy in, in D.C.? Look at him. I'll have it's, fun there. He has a good time in <laughs> D.C. Look at him. They have whiskey. They have a lot of good stuff, man. But we were up there, um, Bougie Sean and I were there this the last time, and we went to Russia House, and we were in. We were at that state in the game that we should be at Russia House. I was going to say know. you only go there at, yeah. at a certain level, yeah, and then you don't leave for a while. Because we'd gone to the the Nationals baseball game and stuff. Yeah. So after that, and so you go in there and you expect at any time John Wick to come, come and th- just walk through, start shooting people in the head because everybody is Russian and has some caviar and 
and the vodka and it's stuff. It's everything you want it to be. Yeah. Like, it is a stereotype come to life. It 100% yeah. is. But I love that the red awning out front looks like a MAGA hat. Yeah. When it says Russia House. Have you ever noticed that <laughs> I've before? I've never noticed it. It's the red awning out there with the writing that says Russia House that looks like a MAGA oh, okay. hat. Okay. Well, now I'm not going to be able to unsee it. You're not, so. You won't be able to unsee it. But we went in and had caviar, drank some vodka. And there was uh, it was myself. John Miller was there. Uh, some others. And we left and we all forgot to pay the tab. Fortunately, a friend of ours went back in. I was like, that's it. We've got yeah, an oligarch uh, that's uh, after us. Yeah, I was going to say the Russian mafia probably has something <laughs> to say about that. <laughs> we had the best time, and then we forgot to pay the tab. So anyway, you if you're in D.C., go to Russia House. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Yeah. You're pleasant. You're lovely. Are you single? Uh, no. No. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I don't want my Twitter DMs Thank to blow up. Thank God. <laughs> this woman is not single. Don't say a <laughs> she, word, Steve. She paused. She paused. <laughs> I was going to say, boys out there, don't be creepy old men, but listen, lovely lady, good head on her shoulders. Concealed um, carry, be careful. Concealed carry, and in D.C., no less. That yeah. makes you more attractive. In yeah, yeah. the Beltway. In Texas, she'd be snapped right up. D.C., not so much. Hey, good luck in the swamp. Thank you for Thank doing what you. you do. And keep up this good stuff. Always welcome here on set. Anytime you're coming through Dallas, hang Thanks out so with us. Yeah, That was a blast. You Thanks, got big guys. stuff going on. God bless you. We'll be right back. You know, everybody, we're talking about America and conservatism and things that matter. Um, one of the things that matters is history. And the fact that we tend to whitewash history and not know where we came from is problematic for me. So I want to talk to you about something that I told you on another podcast episode that I want to talk to you about. And that is the Pine Tree Riot. It happened in 1772. Now, what in the world? Have you even heard of the Pine Tree Riot? I don't know. I have people all the time who are telling me you can't stoop to somebody's level to win a fight. You know, you got to go high when they go low. Oh, wait, that's right. That's what Michelle Obama said. But, you know, the liberals haven't done that in forever. But let me just take you back in history a little bit and talk about when America was not America yet. It was the American colonies that was under British rule. And we had not yet fought the revolution. We had not yet signed the Declaration of Independence we had not called ourselves a nation yet. We were just a colony of people trying to make it independently without the influence of the governmental tyranny on our lives. In 1722, in the state of New Hampshire, and in fact, all over New England, uh, there were a lot of um, there were there was a lot of controversy that started going on because, if you recall. One of the reasons that Great Britain was one of the dominant world powers of the time was because of their navy. The Royal Navy was the strongest. It was the best. And in order for the navy to re remain strong, is they had to keep building ships. And when they built those ships, they used a lot of the timber that was harvested in the northeastern part of what is now the United States, specifically in areas like New Hampshire. So beginning in 1922, they would go into the forest and they would mark the trees that they wanted to use. These were eastern white pines. And what they would do is they would use these pine trees as the center mast for the sails. They were very strong. And this is what they wanted to use because the Britain had depleted all of their tree supply. So they were getting it from the colonies. So they had to take an arrow and they would mark the tree. And if that tree had been marked you could not if you were a colonist you could not 
cut down that tree and use it for your own purposes. Specifically, the trees had to be uh, anything that was 12 inches in diameter or larger. So it wasn't uncommon to um, to go into a colonist's home and see the planks on their floor to be 12 inches wide because in defiance of the king, they'd cut down the trees anyway, and they would create those boards and make them. Well, obviously, this infuriated Britain, and so they put land surveyors in charge over the colonies so that they could come in and make sure that their trees weren't being messed with because these eastern white pines were important. That happened all the way up until 1772. Governor Wentworth of New Hampshire was hard at it, making sure that no colonists were cutting down the king's pine trees and the king's forest. And this was pissing off the colonists because how are you going to build your house if you can't cut down trees? How are you going to build buildings? How are you going to do business? How are you going to do anything if you can't build trees? Well, they did it. They cut them down. Didn't care what the diameter was. Didn't care if it had the king's mark on it or not. Colonists were going in. They were cutting down the trees. Damn to the king. Damn to the monarchy. Death to the monarchy. We were taking their trees. It's growing on our land. It belongs to us. We are going to use our own trees. Well, John Sherman, who was a surveyor of the New Hampshire woods, he went in to several different counties in New Hampshire and started inspecting the sawmills. And in the sawmills, he found that some of the trees that had been cut down actually had the king's mark on it. So what the sawmill owners were doing was actually illegal. They weren't allowed to be doing these things. And now they were caught red-handed. And so he fined them. Several of the counties, several of the sawmills, several of the different citizens, they paid their fines. But there were some who wanted to fight it. So they hired a man who was an attorney. His name was Samuel Blodgett. Samuel Blodgett went to Governor Wentworth, and guess what Governor Wentworth and the surveyor John Sherman did? They offered him a job in pure lawyerly attorney fashion. Guess what he did? Rather than represent the people that were sent that sent him, he accepted the job. He accepted the job as being an overseer of the King's Woods. Talk about betrayal. So they sent the sheriff, Ben Whiting, and his deputy, John Quigley, down to the counties that had not paid their fine for using the king's trees. Everybody except for Weir County in New Hampshire paid the fine. And one particular sawmill that was owned by Ebenezer Mudgett said, no, you can kiss our ass. We're not paying the fine. So they arrested Mudgett. Mudgett must have been a pretty good dude to, pretty good, um, ability to, to debate and, and talk himself out of trouble because he convinced Quigley and Whiting to let him go. And he said, I'll come back tomorrow morning and I'll pay my bail. So they let him go. So he went home and about 30 of the townspeople gathered at his house and they went back into town as a group. They painted their face and smut and, and uh, covered themselves up. It was maybe the first recorded opportunity in history to blackface, right? They went into the hotel where the sheriff and his deputy were sleeping, barged into their room with sticks and took them by the arms, took them by the legs and held them with their arms and legs outstretched face down to the floor. And they beat the hell out of them with these sticks. They took these white pine limbs and beat the hell out of them and then took them outside naked put them on their horses, 
They shave the manes off their horses, shave the tails off of their horses, and they cut the ears off of their horses and sent them back to their town. Why they do that to the horses? Well, it made them absolutely worthless at that point. So it was a complete insult to not only the government officials, the king's men, but it was a stamp of revolution that said we're not going to be dictated to anymore by this monarchical tyranny. We're going to fight back. It showed a lack of authority with the royal government, with the royal authority. It showed that it had a lot of bark, a lot of growl, but not a lot of teeth. And it inspired things like the Boston Tea Party, those folks who went out in the middle of the harbor in the middle of the night and dumped very valuable tea as a statement of defiance while dressed up like Indians and said, big middle finger to the king. It was that attitude, that stooping low, if you will, of fighting back and saying we're not going to take this anymore that led to the American Revolution and ultimately to the destiny that created the United States of America. So I want to encourage you, whenever folks are telling you to just turn the other cheek and not fight back, not advocating violence in any form or fashion, but I am saying to stand strong, stand your ground, and begin to defend what is rightly yours. Because if you don't, your rights are going to be stripped away one by one. And I have no question about it that those on the left these days are fighting not only for your Second Amendment right, but primarily are going after your First Amendment right. Right now in the state of New York, they're wanting to fine people $250,000 for using certain language or words, things like illegal alien. Well, Illegal alien, illegal alien, illegal alien, illegal alien. There, I just chalked up a million-dollar fine. I'm telling you, the stuff has become ludicrous. Hold to your values, hold to your principles, and be willing to fight back. Use your words. Use your logic. Use history to help you make your case. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Chad Brather Show. We will see you next time. Find me out on tour. Watchchad.com. Don't forget to go where podcasts are offered and listen to them, download them, rate and review them, and be sure to subscribe to the Chad Prather YouTube channel so that you can watch us right here every day in Studio 22. I love you. God bless. Bye.